In July 1675, just as Metacomet's Wampanoag were escaping from their mauling at the hands of a contingent of Mohegan warriors, a Nipmuc war party led by a chief named Matunas attacked the Massachusetts Bay Colony settlement of Menden, killing several settlers. This was the first violence of its kind in Massachusetts Bay, and it was a terrifying alarm to settlers and authorities alike. The violence that Metacomet's people had visited upon Swansea seemed to be spreading. The attack on Menden cast some light on the nature of the conflict that would engulf New England in the coming months. Rather than a coordinated strategic strike by an insurgent force under a unified command, what happened in the summer of 1675 was more like a, a spasm of scattered violent outbreaks that built in momentum until the native peoples and the Puritan colonists found themselves in a full-blown war. A war that ranged all the way from Rhode Island and Massachusetts up into Maine. In this, it, it kind of resembles the Dakota Uprising of 1862 in Minnesota or the Matabili Rebellion of 1896 in what was then Rhodesia and is now Zimbabwe. Matunas and his Nipmuc followers weren't acting in concert with Metacomet and his Wampanoag, and certainly not under Metacomet's direction. Metacomet couldn't have even known that Matunas had taken to the warpath. Matunas had a personal grievance against the colonists who had tried, convicted, and executed his son for a crime he may or may not have committed. The attack on Swansea seems to have just tripped Matunas's trigger and sent him out to make the settlers pay for his own personal grievance. And the Nipmuc had been subject to the same kind of pressures of land and culture that the Wampanoag had. It was just possible for the settlers that the Nipmuc could be kept neutral despite Matunas's action. And in fact, even as he was hitting Menden, a woodsman and trader named Ephraim Curtis, mark that name too, um, was he was meeting with Nipmuc leaders, including the Sachem Matomp, to sound out their temper. Matomp, certainly disingenuously, assured Curtis that the Nipmuc were friendly, and he promised to visit Boston to reassure the colonial authorities. And so Curtis returned to Boston with the news and was promptly sent back out to guide a militia contingent of 25 mounted militiamen led by Captain Thomas Wheeler and Captain Edward Hutchinson deep into the forest in Nipmunk country to meet with Matomp and ensure that the Nipmuk were indeed still on side. The militiamen were guided by Curtis and a contingent of Natick praying Indians serving as scouts. The settlers of the town of Brookfield, which was nestled right in the middle of that Nipmuc, Nipmuc forest, um, were convinced that their neighbors weren't hostile. They were so convinced that eight men from the town joined the Wheeler-Hutchinson expedition without carrying any arms. When the expedition reached the, the main Nipmuc town in the region on July 31st and found that there was nobody there, the scouts got a bad feeling and urged the captains to turn around. 
and this is classic frontier partisans warfare scenario. The captains, however, decided to push on deeper into the forest. Curtis, who was probing ahead, being an accomplished woodsman, found a contingent of nipmucks, and they agreed to meet on August 2nd, 1675, at their new camp. When the expedition moved out, they moved out into a swamp. New England at this time, as you might recall from previous episodes, was covered in swamp and bog terrain. The column was forced to string out into single file on a really narrow trail surrounded by tall grass. Once again, in a classic scenario, the scouts didn't like it. They were very uncomfortable. Once again, the captains ignored them. When they were about 300 yards out into their route, gunfire erupted from the long grass. Nipmuc warriors poured musket fire into the column, and the militiamen scarcely even tried to return fire. They just tried to turn around and flee back the way they'd come. But Nipmuc warriors, in a very well-executed ambush, blocked their path. Both Wheeler and Hutchinson went down. They were badly wounded, as did several of their men, and eight men were killed outright. Only action by the Natick scouts, who led the survivors up a slope and into some wooded hills, saved this whole Massachusetts militia contingent from being annihilated. So the survivors just fled pell-mell back to Brookfield. Fortunately, they had horses uh, with their wounded and with Matomp's Nipmuc in hot pursuit. The militiamen and the settlers of Brookfield... About 80 people forded up in the Ayers Garrison House, again, the strongest house in the community, as the Nipmuc poured into town and began to burn their homes. And this inaugurated what would become an epic, kind of classic New England King Philip's War siege. The Nipmuc opened up a brisk fire on the Ayers House, and several people over the course of a couple of days, were wounded or killed. One man who left shelter to retrieve some supplies from another house was cut down and beheaded, and the Nipmuc kicked his head around for a while and then mounted it on a pole to taunt the heir's garrison. Ephraim Curtis, who was just as intrepid as they come, tried to break out with one other man on a ride to seek aid, but he was turned back by a blocking force of of Nipmuc. He would try again on August 3rd. This time, he was alone and on foot, and he ran 30 miles to the town of Marlborough seeking aid. Luckily for Brookfield, aid was already on the way. A 48-man contingent of mounted militia was already en route, because they'd been alerted by travelers who had heard the heavy gunfire and surmised that Brookfield was under attack. The attack was furious, and uh, the fire was very heavy, but the Nipmuc just didn't have the means to reduce a strong point like the Ayers Garrison House. The only real 
means they had to, to try to, to destroy the building was to, to burn it. Um, they tried shooting fire arrows into the roof, but the defenders were able to bust out the shingles on the roof and extinguish any, any fires that got started. The Nipmucks finally filled a cart that they just you know found laying around in the street. They filled this cart with bark and straw and set it alight and tried to wheel it up against the walls of the, the heir's house. But just as they rolled it out, a thunderstorm broke and put the fire out. And you can imagine that the Puritans saw the hand of providence in, in that piece of, of good fortune. The uh, 48-man contingent of, uh, of militiamen under Captain Willard rode into town that night, and they were able to make it all the way to the garrison house without being intercepted. And that's kind of a, of a strange and curious thing. I mean, the, the, the Nipmuc had that building under a pretty intense siege. In later years, a, a Puritan commentator laid that piece of good fortune to what he called an unaccountable besottedness on the part of the Nipmuc. He may have meant that they were drunk, but it seems more likely to me that they were just worn out after hours of combat and, and maybe they fell asleep or at least were, were not alert. In any case, Willard's men got into the, the heir's house um, and substantially increased both the, the uh, size of the garrison, obviously, and their firepower. And realizing this, Matomp broke off the attack and his force just melted away into the woods. And then more reinforcements arrived shortly after that from, from Curtis's mission to Marlboro and uh, the Mohican warriors who had bloodied up Metacomet at Nipsichuk also arrived. So there was something like 300 fighting men on scene, uh, which meant that the town was secure, but there really wasn't anything left of it. The Nipmuc had burned all of the homes and killed off livestock, and uh, so there just wasn't, wasn't much left of Brookfield, and the people who lived there just abandoned the, the village. Captain Hutchinson died of his wounds a few days after the siege, and Captain Wheeler survived. This ambush that came to be known as Wheeler's Surprise and the siege of Brookfield that followed it were really kind of a template for combat in King Philip's War. Ambush tactics served a native insurgency very well. When they could catch a militia force strung out in the woods, especially in a swamp or crossing a stream, they could inflict significant casualties without uh, usually taking too many themselves. The native warriors were capable of attacking a town, which they showed at Brookfield. They could kill people in outlying buildings and, and burn entire villages, but they couldn't break into an overwhelmed strong points like a garrison house. And that, again, happened uh, over and over. Through the summer and early fall of 1675, 
this violence, these kinds of attacks just kind of spasmed across Massachusetts and towns up and down the Connecticut River were burned out and abandoned. One of those towns was Deerfield, a town that would see more than its share of hardship and violence over decades of wilderness wars. It'll come up again during Queen Anne's War. Settlers and colonial authorities decided to just evacuate Deerfield. It was too exposed. And they assigned the task to a Captain Thomas Lathrop. And his 80-man militia contingent escorted settlers with carts laden with all of their worldly possessions en route to the town of Hadley, Massachusetts. The column paused at a small waterway known as Muddy Brook, which was a little south of Deerfield. Many of the militiamen put their muskets up in the carts and started picking wild grapes. And Matomp's Nipmuc struck this very vulnerable column in a well-set ambush. And the results were pretty catastrophic. Puritan commentator Increase Mather wrote, They seized upon the carts and goods, many of the soldiers having been so foolish and secure as to put their arms in the carts and step aside to gather grapes, which proved dear and deadly grapes to them. Killed Captain Lathrop and above threescore of his men, stripped them of their clothes, and so left them to lie weltering in their own blood. Captain Samuel Mosley, who you'll recall as being the commander of a contingent of semi-piratical sailors and, and seacoast men, was in the area patrolling and heard the sound of the gunfire. And being that kind of commander, he moved to the sound of the guns, um, was too late to save Lathrop and his men, but uh, as Increase Mather writes, Nevertheless, he gave the Indians battle. They were in such numbers as that he and his company were in extreme danger, the Indians endeavoring, according to their mode of fighting, to encompass the English round and then to press in upon them with great numbers so to knock them down with their hatchets. But uh, Mosley's men fought well, and only a handful of them were killed. And then another contingent of colonial forces under uh, Major Robert Treat, uh, which was composed of both militiamen and some uh, friendly native allies, they arrived at the scene, and Matomp and the Nipmuc withdrew. Uh, they had inflicted very significant casualties on uh, the colonial militia and some of the civilians. Um, it's not clear how many casualties the Nipmuc took. As Mather wrote, the battle was a black and fatal day, wherein there were eight persons made widows and six and twenty children made fatherless, all in one little plantation, and in one day, and above sixty persons buried in one dreadful grave. So Muddy Brook became known ever after as Bloody Brook, and it was a, a tremendous disaster, and a disaster that was really emblematic 
of the abysmal performance of the colonial forces in the first months of King Philip's War. Historian Douglas Edward Leach offered a really scathing analysis in his 1958 book, Flintlock and Tomahawk, New England and King Philip's War. Before diving into that, I need to talk a little bit about Leach. He was a historian who was coming from a point of view that was prevalent in 1958 when, when the book was published that, that I call triumphalist history. Not entirely triumphalist, but he definitely saw King Philip's War as a contest between an ascendant civilization and one that was doomed to vanish. Um, he views the war really from the Puritan point of view, although he's not uncritical, as you'll see, of the Puritans. And some of the language that he uses to describe the native peoples is, is pretty jarring to modern ears. For example, we, we don't hear native warriors who were fighting for their way of life called savages too often anymore, and, and Leach does use that term. Um, I guess some might consider his work to be dated, and in some senses it is, I suppose, but um, it really remains the foundation stone of scholarship on King Philip's War, particularly the military history of King Philip's War. And I think he is spot on in his evaluation of the military situation as of the fall of 1675. It must be obvious by now that the war effort of the New England colonies was both inadequate and inept. One might even venture to say that the colonists were rapidly losing the war, even though as yet there was no immediate danger of annihilation. Blunder had followed blunder in almost incredible succession, and one must pause to ask why the English were not able to resist the Indians more effectively. The rapid spread of the uprising had really taken the colonists by surprise, finding them without adequate preparations or plans. Moreover, the very nature of the enemy's tactics had produced a serious disruption of normal economic activity, even in areas far removed from the immediate zones of combat. As one officer noted, the people were very much discouraged in their spirits, and thereby dissuaded from their callings. It was not that the people were cowardly, they simply did not know how to care for their crops and provide for the security of their families under the constant threat of an enemy who lurked everywhere and struck without warning. One of the serious effects of the spreading of the war was the growing shortage of food for men and cattle caused by the fact that ordinary work in the fields had become dangerous for small isolated groups. Leach goes on to note, From a purely military point of view, New England's greatest weakness in these opening months of the war stemmed from the inexperience of the military forces and their leaders. The laxness of discipline in the ranks caused increasing concern to the authorities until finally on the 26th of October, the General Court of Massachusetts adopted a strict code for the government of the colony's troops. Early in January, Connecticut followed suit. Even more dangerous than loose discipline, however, was the Army's ineptitude in strategy and tactics. The long list of military failures from Cassett to Springfield clearly reflects poor leadership at all levels. Commanding officers seemed painfully slow in learning the lessons of forest warfare. 
All during the July campaign, the Indians demonstrated their skill at scouting, swamp fighting, and laying ambushes. But many of the colonial officers still believed that such cowardly brutes as the Indians could never be able to prevail against English soldiers properly drilled and led. The formations and tactics, which had served Cromwell on the battlefields of England, yielded but slowly to the hard lessons of defeat and death in the American forest. Because there was a lingering feeling that civilized gentlemen must not fight like savages, the lives of many civilized gentlemen were lost. Leach goes on to identify the tactical doctrine that would be adopted later in the war and was really necessary to allowing the colonial forces to be successful against the Indians, um, and it's something that we'll discuss in, in depth when we uh, focus on Benjamin Church. The real answer to the problem of how to deal with the skulking tactics of the enemy, as time was to show, lay in the intelligent adaptation of standard English tactics to forest con conditions, and especially the systematic use of friendly Indians as scouts with every English force that moved through the woods. These natives were expert in the art of detecting the presence of other Indians, and whenever they were used, ambushes became much less of a danger. I guess I would note that, that the English were already showing signs uh, in fits and starts of adapting to uh, forest warfare conditions, uh, even at the Battle of, of Bloody Brook, which uh, occurred in September of 1675. As I mentioned, Captain Mosley and his crew of ruffians fought well at Bloody Brook, and uh, just a, a few months later in the year, um, they would help the settlers beat off an attack on the town of Hatfield, which was a big morale and confidence booster for the colonial forces and, uh, and inflicted some, some significant casualties on the Nipmuc, uh, which we need to talk about as well because things weren't all good on the side of the native insurgency. They had momentum, for sure. Their momentum had carried them through a really successful summer and fall campaign, and they delivered some really heavy blows to the New England settlers. But they really just didn't have the capacity to deliver a knockout punch. And the prospect that they could annihilate the English settlements in New England was just remote to the vanishing point. They, they could push them back, but they couldn't drive them into the sea. They just didn't have the capacity. And the capacity that they did have was diminishing. Although they'd been very successful and inflicted heavy casualties on the New England settlers and their militia, they had taken casualties too, and they could not replace the casualties that they took. And as we've noted in previous episodes, they were in a real bind when it came to maintaining their supplies and munitions. Um, their economy was at least as disrupted as the economy of New England. They needed to hunt and plant to keep body and soul together. And being constantly on the move or under pressure from colonial forces made that very difficult. So they had significant challenges 
as well as the New England settlers did. And really what the native insurgency required was an expansion of the insurgency. They needed allies to bolster their forces and give them some strategic depth. The Narragansetts, who were very numerous, were a potential ally, but they'd stayed out of the conflict so far. They'd taken in some refugees, which was a big problem for uh, the New England authorities. The New England military authorities were acutely aware that they were a powerful tribe and could pose a major problem. And they had actually negotiated with them twice, um, trying to keep them neutral, but uh, were increasingly suspicious that the Narragansetts were about to join the insurgency. And so the New England military authorities began to think of a unified preemptive strike. Metacomet, who you'll surely notice was pretty much missing from our story in this episode, would head west into Mohawk territory during the winter in hopes of developing alliances. And in both of these cases, that meant that the war was going to get even more bloody and desperate as the year 1675 rolled into the year 1676. I'd like to give a shout out to the patrons who make the Frontier Partisans podcast possible. That's Rick Schwertfager, David Rolson, Paul McDamee, Matthew Free Live Free, Christopher West, Jerry Nunnally, Alan Godseff, Bob Dice, Chaz Clifton, Wade McKnight, Mike McIver, Harry Kaiser, and Ash. And uh, if you're interested in uh, throwing down a few clues to help uh, keep this electronic campfire going, the link to the Patreon page is in the show notes. And uh, the next episode will be delving into a couple of uh, major actions in King Philip's War, which uh, offer quite a quite a bit of excitement and interest so uh, looking forward to you joining me to explore those episodes the great swamp fight and uh, the mohawk attack on metacomet's wampanoag and uh, we'll pick that up next time so we'll see you down the trail <laughs>